Good evening and welcome to another week of Pastor's Class as we walk through 1 Thessalonians. As we come to the end of this book, we're in uh, chapter 5 this week and looking at uh, the church. And so much about the church at Thessalonica has been a healthy and vibrant church. There's so much that Paul has commended about this church. And so as we get to uh, here in chapter 5, we're going to really look at the idea of a healthy church and how we should relate to one another. This text will break up into a couple of different ways. It'll look from pastors and how they should relate to the church and then how the church should relate to pastors and then how the church should relate to one another. It's all about our relationships with each other. And so we want to take these few minutes, walk through these verses. So if you have your Bible there open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we'll go from verse 12 all the way down through verse 22, looking at a healthy church. The main idea today is that a healthy church is identified by how its people relate to one another and to God. And so we walk through this. We have the handout available there online, as well as you can uh, pick up the book, Christ-Centered Exposition, which we've been using uh, for our outlines and other resources as we walk through this study. But we're in 1 Thessalonians 5. I'd like to to read these verses to you and then kind of show you how they break up as we read and then pray for us. Beginning in verse 12, he says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among your, yourselves. So there's pastors, those who labor among you, and the church. That's verse 12 and 13. Look at verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, and he rifles off lists here. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Then he gives commands as a Christian. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, and abstain from every form of evil. Let me pray for us as we study this text. Heavenly Father, use these moments to encourage us as a church, strengthen our walk with you, and may we be found faithful in a healthy church as we strive uh, to live out your call on our life in this text. Help us to to follow what your text says here is the will of God, what you desire uh, for each and every one of us. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You know, the will of God is an interesting subject. What is it that God wants for us? And oftentimes it gets slotted with, I talked about this a couple weeks ago in here, with these kind of, uh, I need to discern and pray what God's will is for my life. And it gets slotted with thinking about job and career and these big major decisions. But the will of God is oftentimes much simpler than that. It's simply our holy living as a church. And so as we take these, uh, this text today, it, it'll really boil down to just the basic idea of loving God and loving people. Our relationship with God and people is really what God is concerned about. That's what he cares about, much more than where you are or what job you're doing. He cares about whether you're walking with him, whether you love him, and whether you love other people. So that's kind of the, the general 
idea that pulls this whole text together. But we've got a fairly detailed outline. I'm going to move quickly through it uh, so we don't get bogged down, but I do want to make sure that we hit each of these phrases and take a moment just to examine our hearts and our lives and how we're living this out. So as you listen, listen for your own application and how we, each one of us, are uh, living these things out in our personal walk, particularly as members of Hickory Grove. So if you're looking there, there's several bullet points. The first one, the big header, is that the is a value of healthy relationships. And this is going to look at relationships uh, from pastors to people to people to people like we just talked about. So let's uh, look at first the leaders who take their calling seriously. Look at verse 12. We ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. This is a very serious calling on the life of a pastor. Those who labor among you. And so you see that first bullet point there. It's a pastor's work. A person who labors among you. And so just, just to be clear here, in order for the pastor to desire to see this respect, he's also called to work. And so in, in the life of a pastor, he's called to work and to labor among the people of the church. The, the life of a pastor is meant to be spent uh, in the body of Christ, laboring and giving their life to the people of the church. In many ways, this happens naturally. As you labor among people, they begin to grow in respect for you. As you care for them and serve them and pray for them, respect naturally comes uh, to a pastor. But this, when he says labor, he's meaning giving your life and everything you have to the work of the church. This means it's not a nine to five job. It's not punching a clock and heading home and forgetting about it otherwise. You're giving your entire life as a pastor to the work of the church. So there's not some sort of separation of your home life and over here you live this particular life and over here is church life. If you are a pastor, your life, your family's life is invested in the church. And oftentimes as I've seen interns grow up and come into ministry, one of the things I've watched is there sometimes an intern will sign up for a summer job uh, to work at the church. And if I look into their past and see the level of commitment and involvement they have in church is fairly minimal. They just kind of come on Sundays and then they're taking this summer job. If I look at that person and I put them up against another intern who, man, they just live at church. They are, every free moment they have, they're a part of a ministry. They're serving at church. They just, they give their lives to it. There's a marked difference as those two come into ministry. Because one of them sees the church, they're willing to serve it before there's ever a paycheck. They're willing to be a part of ministry, and they're just there all the time because they love the church. And that is, uh, I think, what fits well in this idea of laboring among them, just giving your life over to the church. So if you want to respect those, it, it, the, uh, the call on a pastor to give that respect, it's given because you see that pastor is given their entire life to the ministry of the church. This means investing everything you have. So a pastor works, he labors. A pastor also leads. Look at what it says here. Uh, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are, and here's a phrase of, over you in the Lord. The pastor is given the responsibility to provide leadership to the body of Christ. 
to lead here is to preside or to lead or to direct the church. Now, this isn't dictator-like. 1 Peter 5 says you're, you're not there to lord it over them. That's not, that's not how it works. You're not, you're not there as a dictator. However, it is a responsibility to provide leadership, and the church is responsible to come up under that leadership. Now, sometimes it, we can become uncomfortable with that idea of someone having uh, authority over. But here, here's how you need to see authority. Authority is something that God gives, and it is only for, you're only able to exercise the authority you've been given. So if a teacher has authority in a classroom, that authority is only to the level that has been granted from the principal, the school, and then from the parents, and then the government. There are higher authorities that have granted that teacher authority. Now, there are spots that the teacher knows that the authority is limited. The teacher can only go so far, but that's because the authority has been given to them. And it's the same way it works here of a pastor in the church. There's authority. There is responsibility that's been given over to this leader in the life of a church. And uh, before we go too much further, I want to just take us to Hebrews chapter 13 that helps just expand this idea a little bit more. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them. When it says leaders here, if you look in the larger context of Hebrews 13, it's speaking about pastors and leaders in the church. For they are keeping watch over your souls as to, as to those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So the pastor is going to give an account to the higher authority. So, so thinking in lines of authority here, there you are submitting to the pastor and looking to them for leadership. Now, at times this can be abused. I, I don't want to doubt that there are stories and places where pastoral leadership and authority in the life of a believer has been abused or wrongly used. However, that doesn't mean you throw all authority out just because sometimes it's wrongly used. Just because some parents out there are abusive to their children doesn't mean we throw the whole family structure out. Doesn't mean we think all mothers and fathers and their authority is bad. Just because there's sometimes a bad teacher or sometimes there's a bad authority doesn't mean we take the whole thing and throw it out. The same thing's true here, is that even if you may think of examples where it may not be used rightly, that doesn't mean we don't see authority uh, from the pastor and the responsibility to lead the flock as a right and godly Thing. Now, here's a, a third one that kind of comes out of that. As we think about pastoral responsibility in the church, one of the things that's placed on a pastor is also to call out sin or to admonish. That brings us to the third point here, is that the pastor admonishes. So, notice there in verse uh, 12, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord. That's that responsibility. And then admonish you is the third one. This means to put into your mind or to warn you. So you're calling this out. Maybe the person's not aware of it. Maybe they don't see the sin, but you're, you're calling out sin. And this happens on a couple of different levels in the life of the church. Timothy Whitmer wrote a book on shepherding, and he defined it in these two categories. He called it macro-shepherding and micro-shepherding. Macro is the broad uh, shepherding, like the preaching of the word in the, the Bible, in the service. It's right now, you're listening to this video, hearing a... a uh, a Bible teaching, and in that moment when the Bible's applied, and maybe there's we're calling a sin out in your life, uh, you you feel admonished. Uh, that happens in this broad fashion that we do in the church. But then there's also micro shepherding. There's times 
uh, where not just you sat through a sermon and somebody stepped on your toes, uh, but somebody actually was part of your life enough to observe some sort of sin and they pointed it out and it would be a pastor. They might look at you and say, hey, you know what, in this, in this scenario, you're in sin. This might be church discipline, oftentimes where it happens. Um, but what we're speaking about is uh, admonishing someone, calling out a sin, uh, because the pastor, the Bible says, is going to give an account for your soul. So, so just understand the weight of responsibility that's been placed on the pastors. And so if they come to you, if the pastor sits down with you and points out sin in your life, it's not because they're just looking for a fight and just in a bad mood and wanting to pick on you. It's because they feel a responsibility before God for your soul. And so they care about you and love you enough to bring uh, this sin to light, to warn you, to bring it to your mind is what it said. So, so that's the responsibilities of a pastor. But let's think more, uh, th this calling, but let's look the other way here. People who uh, love one another devotedly. So let's speak about people to pastors. How do people respond to their pastor? So if the responsibility of a pastor is to, to warn against sin, to, um, to have some sort of leadership in the church, and to work hard at what they do among the people. That's what we're called to do as pastors. Uh, what is it that a church member is called to do in response? This echoes a lot of that Hebrews 13 text of submitting to your leaders. Uh, but let me just walk through a few. The first one here is to recognize his calling, to recognize it or to respect it. Look at verse 12 again. We ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So the church should respect or to value the pastor's callings. Now I, I know there are faults with pastors and uh, oftentimes you might be able to see a fault. Uh, we are sinful uh, men that are not perfect and so you might look at a pastor and see their fault and it causes you to not respect a person. But, but a church member, a godly person, should strive to respect their pastor. And let me just talk about two extremes that probably uh, will help us put some boundaries on this and I'll speak to both sides of it. The first would be the person who elevates or respects their pastor too much. They, they begin to think that um, they don't sin or struggle like everybody else. They begin to think, um, you know, I've had people say to me before as they've kind of gotten to know me, they'll say, I, I didn't realize you struggle with the same things that the rest of us do. They, they somehow had a view of a pastor that was that they were this, you know, insanely holy person that didn't struggle with the same other things of life. But, but we do. We are walking this same road of pursuit of holiness as everyone else is. So you don't want to take a pastor and put them on a pedestal that's higher than they belong. However, there is a respect for the work that they do and for them that should be lifted up. The reverse becomes where there's this kind of like flippant look of a pastor and be like, ah, it's just, that's just Mike. There's a should be a sense of understanding. I take seriously the calling and the responsibility placed on my life. And so there should be a respect for that and whatever the Lord's doing around. There's nothing intrinsic to me, but there should be a respect for a pastor. Uh, because of the way the Lord is placed. So for some people, they need to raise it a little bit, and some folks need to lower it a little bit 
to a more reasonable spot in the middle. And the whole reason of that is not because there's something special, like I mentioned. It's because we respect his work. There's a second point there. We respect his work. Notice it there. It says, and to esteem them very highly in love. Why? Why do we put, verse 13, why do we esteem them so highly in love? It's because of their work. This isn't because the, the pastor is somehow some person who is more special and sanctified to God. Now there is a standard placed on the pastor, but they're just a sinful man trying to meet these standards. But ultimately that's because the work, the calling that has been placed on them uh, that is very serious in nature. So you respect the job. It's the same way you, you think about all kinds of people in positions of power and uh, from politics to places in positions of leadership or the job you work at and you have a boss, whatever it might be, you show them a respect because of their job and the same thing works from a pastor. Because of the job and the calling placed on their life, you have respect for their work. And then right below that, there is a rest in his leadership. You know, we're called to work well together as Christians, to live peacefully among ourselves. Look at verse 13. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work and to be at peace among your Selves. Now, this couldn't probably be more crucial today than it ever has been because our world is not at peace amongst itself. It, there is uh, not, just really living right now in the United States, there's not a sense of peace. There's more a sense of unrest. And so as this unrest plays out on multiple fronts, from how we're dealing with the coronavirus to racial tension and the struggles that you know we have right now that doesn't give excuse for the church to not be at peace amongst itself and to rest under its leadership so there's a there's a calling on our lives to act differently and to live differently now this this doesn't mean we don't admonish one another but it means we do it in kindness we do it with grace. We do it with love. E even if we're sitting with somebody and calling out sin, there's no reason not to do it with a peaceful, godly, loving attitude among ourselves. Now listen, I know everybody's got their opinion. There are a thousand opinions out there right now. However, inside the church, we show grace to each other and we work together because we are of a kingdom that's bigger than any kingdom on this earth. We serve a master and a shepherd that's bigger than any president or any leader uh, outside uh, that's, that's existing on this earth because we live peacefully amongst ourselves. So that's pastors and people. Let's look people to people. How do, how do just Christians relate to Christians? Again, this isn't just everybody. We need to make the distinction that we, we aren't pressed into this for every person on the planet, but even as the text says, we urge you brothers. So he's talking about people that are brothers and sisters in Christ and how they get along. So the first way we do this is we warn the irresponsible. So look at verse 14. We urge you brothers, admonish the idle. So we've got to find a way. We've got to do this peacefully, but we still are going to admonish each other. 
So you got to put those two together. They can work. You just have to strive for both. Now, as we look at the idea of admonishing the idol or this list, I want you to just think, is there something out of this list of things that I'm about to list out here that you probably could go do right now that would be uh, helpful to the body of Christ? So maybe out of this list, there might be something you can go do right now because uh, real practical uh, of a way in which we can minister to the body of Christ. Now I want to put these two together. This warn the irresponsible and comfort the discouraged. I want to put them together because it, it was going to require, so the first point there, warn the irresponsible, comfort the discouraged is the second. Um, I think they're two different forms of the same thing. So there's an irresponsible, lazy person doing nothing. That could be either not doing a job, it could be not serving the body of Christ, it could be just living a complacent life. Warning, warn the, admonish the idols, what he said. Okay? So there's that person. And then over here is the encourage the faint hearted, there you see in the text. So the person that is tired and weary. So the faint hearted person might look like the idol person. But the discernment of the Lord tells you how you should treat them. One idle person needs a good kick in the rear end to move along. That means admonish them. You're going to sit down with them and say, hey, you need to stop sitting around. Time to get things moving. You're just being lazy. You need to get things moving along. You need to serve the Lord. The other person, the faint-hearted, they need encouragement. One of them needs a push. The other one needs to be uplifted. They need to hear a kind word. And so these are people that might need to be called out because they just come to church or watch church on Sundays and they don't do anything else for the Lord. You might need to call them out and say, you need to start serving the Lord with your life. You need to do something for him uh, with your life. Uh, some of them maybe just need encouragement. Maybe they're uh, timid about their, you know, their giftings and they're kind of... Uh, unsure about it, maybe you need to learn to encourage them. I'll, I'll recommend a book quickly here. Uh, it's a book called Practicing Affirmation by Sam Crabtree. Uh, great book. If you're not a great encourager, it's a great book to pick up to help you uh, learn to develop a habit of encouraging others. There's something about uh, encouraging others that inspires them, presses them, and helps them uh, to grow into the person God's called them to be. So we should be encouragers of each other. So there's the two halves of that one. Let's deal with the third one. Help the weak. Look there, verse, verse 14, he says, help the weak. This could be physically weak. This could be mentally weak. I think in the church often, I see this a lot. It could happen more, but I was with a Sunday school class, a couple of members of Sunday school class the other day, and they were talking about somebody in their class who was physically uh, struggling. They had had health issues. They were young enough to be able to do their yard work, but they were not physically healthy enough to be able to do it. And they were rallying. They'd already made one trip over to the house and they were working on a second trip to go and take care of their physical needs to help the weak. That's what we're called to do. So maybe you know somebody right now in your mind that's physically weak or unable to do certain things in their life and they just need you to help them. Need you to pick up the weights that they're trying to carry and help them out. So go help a brother or sister in Christ today. Here's another one. Be patient with everyone. So verse 14, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and then now be patient with them all. We need a long fuse. 
And let me just say behind patience is always humility. When you're patient and you wait for things, it, it shows humility and knowing that God, he might have a plan that you're not aware of. And so you're just trusting that he's working a plan. It also shows that, hey, I'm being patient with this other person because I might not see everything exactly right. And their timing and their actions may be right. So I know that I might be wrong with either the Lord's plan or other people may be right. I know it's hard for you to believe, but you might be wrong. You might actually not see it clearly. And so in humility, we know our opinion might not be right. We know that, that the Lord might have a different plan. And so we are patient with each other. We need that right now as well as we deal with the increasingly uh, difficult political climate in our world, we need to be very patient with each other and learning as we walk through these road, roads. Let me give you the last one here. We must refuse to retaliate. Verse 15, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. J Jesus is the best example of this, not to try to even the scales. So if you have someone that's a brother or sister in Christ particular, this is looking to the idea of the church. If you have someone who has wronged you, it's not your job to go even the scales. Now you might need to admonish or to speak to that brother or sister in Christ, but you are not called to go and make justice happen. That's the Lord's job. That's not what we're called to be like as Christians. So we do not, listen to the words, he says, don't repay anyone evil for evil. He's not denying that evil's done to you. He's just saying, don't go back and try to make it even. Always seek to do, to do what, good to one another. And he even throws it out there to everyone. We should be people that seek to do good wherever we're at. That is a good perspective on what we're called to be like in the midst of our current world. So that's us people to people. Now let's speak about the importance of personal devotion, what it looks like for you to walk with the Lord. And this really presses and zeroes in on what it really means to have the will of God. Because he, he defines it here. Uh, if you look for texts that speak about the will of God, he says it here in this text, for this is the will of God. It, it, what he's given here is God's will for your life. So you want to know what God cares about? It's this list. So let's walk through them quickly as we wrap up our time, but I want you to, want you to hear the all-encompassing nature of these short commands that he gives. The first one is you must have a joyful outlook. Verse 16, rejoice always. Joy is not, a, not an option. Joy is not something as a Christian that you can just pick up at the end of the day. If everything just goes right for your Christian life, then you'll have joy. Joy is a command. He says, rejoice always. We as Christians are required to rejoice in the Lord always. Paul will say it multiple times in the book of Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, he'll repeat it. He'll say, I say rejoice. And in this moment, you want to know what the will of God for you is to rejoice in the Lord. We're supposed to rejoice always. The second one, be persistent in prayer. Look there in verse 17. Pray without ceasing. We should be in and out of prayer all day long. 
So this, this doesn't mean that you can't do anything else in life but sit down and pray. Clearly that's not true. But some of us swing the entire other way and we just don't pray much at all. Prayer should be something that happens like you breathe. It's, it's just quietly occurring under your breath and in your mind all day long to where even as you're sitting here watching this right now, you're thinking, Lord, help me to understand what your word has for me and help me to apply it to my heart. When we finish up here, maybe um, you're going to go eat dinner. You think, Lord, thank you for this meal. You don't have to say it out loud at the table. You're, maybe even a couple of times while you're eating, you're thinking, Lord, thank you for this meal. Maybe even as you're walking through your day and you experience small struggles quietly under your breath, you're saying, Lord, help me to deal with this. Lord, give me wisdom. Lord, grant me patience now. Constantly throughout your day should be this conversation with the Lord, Him helping you with what you're doing. Persistence in prayer. The third one is grateful in attitude. Verse 18, give thanks. And he locks it up here. In all circumstances. So whatever you're doing, give thanks in all circumstances. This is, this is where Romans 8.28, that God is working all things for your good, matters. Because if you know God is working all things, even the worst things, He's redeeming them for your good, you can thank Him for all things. That's why James 1, Consider pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. You can have joy and you can give thanks in every circumstance of life. What a mind-blowing thing to be able to do. That's why we live different than this world. We have hope that's contrary to what people might see. And then he defines those three in particular, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So if you come up and say, well, I'm trying to discern the will of God for my life. Let me tell you what it is. You need to rejoice always, give thanks in all circumstances, and pray without ceasing. Prayer, thankfulness, and rejoicing is what God wants out of your life. That's what he's looking for. And he's most concerned with those things. And if you get those things right, everything else is going to flow from that. Now, he's not done here in this list. Let me walk through just a few more. Here's the fourth one. Sensitive in the Spirit. So do not quench the Spirit. So don't do anything that would keep the Spirit from working. Now, there's a pretty easy application of the three above to say that if I am, let's just play it out, if I am praying, rejoicing, and thanking, I think that gives great room for the Spirit to be at work in my heart and my life. That's pretty practical to think about, right? I'm giving, the, the Spirit has all kinds of traction in my heart if I'm praying, thanking, and rejoicing. Now, if I am not praying, thanking, and rejoicing, Guess what I'm probably doing? Quenching the Spirit. So a pretty easy application of what quenching the Spirit looks like. It's not doing the will of God, these things in your life. So today, are you, are you quenching the Spirit? Not allowing the Spirit to work? Here's a, here's a fourth one. We are obedient to Scripture. He says, do not despise prophecies. That means that our heart is sensitive to listening to the Word of God. So when the Word of God speaks truth to us, we don't despise it or respond to it in a negative manner. We hear it. We re rejoice in the Word of God working on our hearts and our lives. And here's the last one. We're committed to discernment. That means that we, are, that we test everything. Look at verse 21. Hold fast to what is good 
and we abstain from every form of evil. So, so let me start with the phrase, test everything. That doesn't mean uh, that you accept everything you hear, so you need to test it. But also, that doesn't mean that you write stuff off before you listen to it. This is part of one of our problems. We've decided that we already know everything. And so we've got it figured out. So we stop actually thinking about what we hear and we just lock into what we just started. This is how it is. But we need to test it. We need to listen to what we hear. So discernment, again, we're dealing with extremes here. Discernment doesn't mean flipping your brain off and saying, my brain's done. I don't need to think anymore. And now, since I'm not thinking anymore about what I've got, I'm just going to receive and just whatever anybody says, whatever any preacher says, whatever I hear, I'm just going to take it all in. So I think, well, I'm not, well, I'm not that way, right? So we aren't that way. I think the reverse happens for a lot of us. We just lock in. We decide what we already know, and we just quit listening. We quit thinking about, is this actually biblical? Is what I've actually heard right? We should always be thinking and engaging what we're hearing. We should be discerning and listening to one another, listening to the body of Christ, learning as we go through, hearing other Christians teach and speak, and we're testing it with the Word of God so that every sermon that we hear, every movie that we watch, every book that we read, everything we might read on Facebook or Twitter, wherever it might be, we're engaging our mind and we're listening and we're thinking so that we test it with, with the Word of God, and then when we find something that's good, look what the text says, we hold fast to it. When we find good stuff, we put our life into it after we've thought about it, and then we stay away from the evil. We step back and we abstain from that. That's the will of God. Notice that when the Bible talked about the will of God there, it didn't talk about anything about your job. It didn't speak anything about some bigger directional decision for you. In fact, some of that becomes not that big of a deal. If you're walking with God, trying to live your life to His glory and the most glory you could possibly give Him, if that's where your heart's direction is, then all the other decisions will work themselves out. Everything else, when you delight yourself in the Lord, He's going to give you the desires of your heart. They're going to match up. And in that moment, that's when you'll find the will of God. So when you're actually coming up on a big decision, I'll end with this point of application for you. When you're coming up on a big decision and you know that it might have some pretty substantial effects on your life from moving to jobs to whatever it might be, th those are the times you can't afford not to be walking with God. You need to be close to the Lord. And I'll say you can't afford any time to be able to do it. I'm just saying when you start worrying about the will of God, push yourself back to these things and make sure your heart is invested completely in Him so that you might honor Him most with your life. And then out of this, the body of Christ, as we work pastors and people and the church plays out, we love each other. We become a witness to the world of the peace and the, the reconciliation and the glory of the gospel as we live together in gospel harmony as a part of the kingdom of God. Let me pray for you and we'll be done. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. The joy it is to study it. And Lord, pray, we pray right now you would strengthen us as we try to pursue you as a church and honor you with our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.